All right, so uh, by way of review, what quick and radical shift have we recently witnessed in Peter's life in the last couple of weeks in our study through Mark 7, 8, and 9? Primarily 8. What do you guys recall over the last couple of weeks, the great shift that we've seen in Peter's life? Yes. And that is a great shift because before that, he was absolutely blind, right? He went from being completely blind, from not having any understanding, uh, from having ears that do not hear, from having a hard heart, to realizing that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. That is quite a shift to be fully hard-hearted, blind, and then have your eyes open to the reality that Jesus is Lord. And then shortly after that, um, we see Peter being rebuked, right? Uh, that he rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus, in short order, turns around and rebukes him right back and says, no, get behind me, Satan, right? So a couple of really stark shifts in the life of Peter and his mindset and his thinking of, yeah, this is some guy special to no, this is the Messiah. This is the king. This is the Lord. And then uh, kind of being shut up and put in his place a little bit because he decided he was going to open up his mouth and tell Jesus what he ought not to do. So big radical shifts happen quickly. And how can we account for these shifts in Peter's life and Peter's mindset? What is it that caused these shifts to to take place. Is this something that flesh and blood revealed to Peter that Jesus is a Christ? Something that he just kind of sat down and, and figured out? Took out his little scratch book and jotted down some numbers and figured out, no, this must be him. Was it just the miracles? Um, I think, yeah, leading up to it, that, that kind of played into it. He was seeing Jesus and um, seeing these amazing things that Jesus was doing. Jesus was healing people. He was bringing people back from the dead. He was uh, casting out demons and even forgiving sin. But it says in Matthew sixteen seventeen that flesh and blood didn't... So after Peter's uh, proclamation that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it says flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but my Father who is in heaven has made this manifest to you. He's revealed this to you. So it was a, a spiritual enlightenment, a spiritual awakening that God gave him these, these eyes to see. Um, that's really the only way that we can come to an understanding of who Christ is, is if he draws us to himself and he opens up our eyes and gives us eyes to see. And then similarly with the, the shift in his thinking of, yes, this is Lord too, but you can't go to the cross, Jesus, uh, and causing Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan. That also was a, a spiritual, he was impacted there spiritually as well. Um, going from being impacted by having the Father open up his eyes to um, having this influence from Satan. Uh, more spiritual influence that even came from Satan. So in Mark eight thirty three, um, that's where it says, but turning around and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And then Matthew even adds that in Matthew 16, 23. And he says, You are a stumbling block to me. So uh, these uh, radical shifts in his thinking really came about by 
spiritual influences, spiritual enlightenments that uh, Peter found himself being the, the object of. And Peter, uh, we have writings from Peter other than in Mark. So Mark was written under the, the guise of Peter. Peter was giving his first-hand accounts to Mark and, and writing them down. And of course, this uh, whole section really focuses around Peter and Peter's interaction with Jesus. But we also have writings from Peter in First and Second Peter. And in First Peter, um, Peter, as he's writing from his experience to Christians who are scattered about uh, Asia Minor as they are uh, being persecuted, he says in First Peter 1, 13 through 16, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Again, Peter's writing from experience, right? He knows um, that he has the propensity not to keep sober in spirit, like we just read about him telling Jesus that's not okay. And so now he's trying to impart that wisdom to those that he's writing to. He's saying, instead, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Something Peter knows a lot about, right? But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then again, towards the end of that epistle, in chapter 5, Peter has uh, a similar uh, exhortation, I guess, for the people that he's writing to. And he uses the same word, in fact to be sober. He says in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, be sober in spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Again, Peter was there, right? He kind of fell under that guise of doing the same thing that, that Satan did. Remember Satan, when he was tempting Jesus, he said, I'll just give you a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Uh, I am anyway, the, the prince of the power of the air, right? He is the, the god of this age, the god of this world. He tried to divert Jesus from going to the cross. And Peter was doing the same thing that Satan had been doing. And so Peter was, uh, he had fallen prey to the prowls of the devil who was seeking someone to devour. Uh, picking it up in verse 9, I think. He says, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience, experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, conform, uh, strengthen, and establish you. And so there towards the end, in verse 10, he appeals to the eternal glory of Christ, something that we're going to get a glimpse of today as we're looking at the transfiguration. Uh, Peter was there. He witnessed it. He saw it. And now he's trying to encourage these other struggling believers with that same hope of the eternal glory of Christ. Uh, one more question for review. What were the monumental declarations that Peter was responding to in his rebuke of Jesus? Why is it that Peter had to, or thought he should rebuke Jesus in the first place? Absolutely. Yeah, Jesus said, I must suffer and, and rise again, right? He was proclaiming his upcoming death. And he followed it up really quickly with his resurrection. But uh, this was 
totally unexpected for Peter. Peter, as you said, Jerry, was looking for a, a Messiah to fulfill all these prophetic roles that he read about in the Old Testament. How could we have a Messiah who is fulfilling his role of prophet and priest and king in this everlasting kingdom that's never going to fade away, that's going to be eternal for all, all ages, if you die? How can that happen? How can you die and still be the Messiah? That can't take place. And I think that this came as such a shock that Peter and the other disciples, they didn't even hear the latter part of what Jesus was saying, talking about his resurrection, because they were so caught up in this problem in their mind that you can't have a, a dead Messiah. That doesn't work. That doesn't equate in their minds. They were not getting it. It, it wasn't clicking for them. And you think through everything that they just went through in the last several we, we read them as verses, right? Several verses. But it's really just a, a conversation that really took place in a short amount of time. This entire exchange would have been an, an emotional roller coaster for all of them. They were going up and down, uh, hearing that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. That he affirmed this. He confirmed this from his own mouth. And it was uh, affirmed to them by God himself who revealed it to them. And then shortly after, right on the hills of that, they learned, okay, but you're, you're going to die? But then you're going to rise again. Uh, how that, that can't be right, right? Again, how can we have a, a dead Messiah? And then Peter decides to, to share this thought. That can't be right. This thought that they were all thinking. And shortly after, he finds himself being rebuked, being called Satan. And not only that, but... Um, Jesus says that they all must die along with him. They have to take up their cross and, and bear their cross and deny themselves if they really want to follow him. So they have a, a lot of excitement and encouragement and fear and confusion and unrest and uh, just all these different emotions that are flowing through their minds, no doubt, hearing all these things just one upon another. And uh, Jesus says that, Despite all of this, some of them are going to see the kingdom. Uh, just to add to, to all the confusion and unrest and wondering what is going on. This is all happening in, in short succession. And he doesn't really jump into and, and explain. He just says, yeah, some of you guys will, will see the kingdom. And so let's go ahead and pick up there in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And see if we can make some sense out of this. It says in Mark 9, 1, that Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's quite a statement. That's kind of what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting, right? They were thinking Jesus is going to come. He's going to usher in this kingdom. He's going to uh, rid Israel of the Romans and set up his kingdom and uh, we're going to be right there with him. They're asking, can we be on your left hand? Can we be on your right hand when you establish your kingdom here on earth, this physical kingdom? Can we be there and do that with you? Um, and now Jesus says, well, some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God. So, a couple of things. Many have pointed to this verse as evidence that Jesus was a false prophet because Jesus said that he will establish a kingdom, right? And so, some people... Uh, primarily atheists, I'll say, Jesus made this false claim in Scripture. We can go to it right here, Mark 9.1. He made this false claim, therefore he's a false prophet, which means that he cannot be the Messiah, which means that 
Christianity is a farce, right? That's a, a claim that we have to deal with. Others, on the other hand, will assert that this indicates that the fullness of Christ's kingdom has in fact come. Because they say, well, are we going to trust Jesus? Are we going to take his words as being true? He said that his kingdom will come, that some of those who are there will not taste death until his kingdom comes. So therefore, I, we have to either take one of these two options. Jesus wasn't a, a true prophet, or he was a true prophet, and his kingdom did in fact come, and um, it has been established in its fullness. And they will say, well, there's really no physical kingdom that we should expect from Jesus, but it was all a spiritual kingdom. Um, we've been talking about this a little bit on Wednesday nights. This is a position that all millennialists or, or premillennialists will take, and they'll claim that this all took place during the first century in 70 A.D., when Jesus, quote-unquote, came back in power and glory, bringing uh, judgment and destruction upon Israel in, in judgment. And they'll highlight this reference here <coughs> that Jesus, um, that some won't taste death. And they'll say that this must have taken place within one generation of that point, cross-referencing Matthew 24. And so... Um, some of them still had to be alive. But then they'll also say that it had to have been long enough after this statement for some of them to have died. Otherwise, this statement wouldn't really hold any meaning. So they'll say it can't be too, too soon after. Otherwise, some of them wouldn't have been able to die, and that wouldn't really be a meaningful statement. But it also can't be so far after that they had all passed away. <coughs> well... Obviously, I think that both of those statements are wrong. I don't think that Jesus' kingdom has been fully established. I think that, uh, as we've talked before, in a spiritual sense, there's an, an already aspect of the kingdom that we recognize that he is king. He's been given all rule and power and authority. And yet, there's still a, a future kingdom that he is going to establish. And I don't believe that that makes Jesus a, a false prophet in any sense. I think we'll get into that and I'll explain why. I think what's happening here is that Jesus is actually encouraging his disheartened disciples, these disciples who had just heard that their Messiah is going to die, and, and they're troubled by it. So he's encouraging his disheartened disciples and giving some of them a glimpse into his power and glory, which will later be fully manifested in the millennium. So we don't have to say that the kingdom has fully come as some have a tendency of doing. So remember that the disciples have just received this terrible news that their understanding of the kingdom is being challenged. They expected Jesus to come and to reign, um, and really not without precedence, because the Old Testament talks about how Jesus will come and he will reign, he will establish a kingdom. Um, it speaks of him uh, reigning, but it also speaks of his death as well. And Jerry did a good job pointing this out last week, talking about how the Old Testament uh, prophesies not only his reign, but his death and how his death must come first. <clears throat> it's kind of like when you're um, talking to your kids and you say, oh, go up, go and clean up your room and then we can have ice cream later. And they say, hey, dad said we could have ice cream. And you're like, what? That's, that's not what I said. I said, you have to go and clean your room first and then do a good job and we can have ice cream later. And... Uh, we have both in the Old Testament, but the disciples only heard the, the latter part, right? They only heard that Jesus is going to reign. Jesus is going to have this kingdom and 
establish his rule, and they just kind of overlooked the whole he has to suffer and die aspect of it. And so the, I think the text itself really gives us no reason to look to 70 AD. It gives us no reason to uh, jump outside of the text, go 40 years into the future. But the context of the passage suggests that Jesus has in view his transfiguration when he says that he's going, that some are going to see his kingdom. I think he's talking about his transfiguration. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, despite the fact that, um, remember we talked about before how not all of the, the Gospels are structured chronologically. And Mark is one of those. It's not structured chronologically. He has certain events that he's wanting to, to pick out and pull out so that he could uh, paint this picture of Jesus going to the cross, of people having this realization of who Jesus is. So it's not chronological. But despite that fact, all of the, the mentions of the, the transfiguration, whenever it's mentioned in the um, synoptics, um, this statement is immediately followed by the transfiguration. So when Jesus says that some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in in his glory in the kingdom. Um, it's always followed by the transfiguration. We have to remember that context matters, right? That is key to our, our hermeneutic, our approach to Scripture. We want to approach a Scripture uh, contextually and literally and grammatically and historically. Whenever we come to the Bible, those are the ways that we want to see what does the Bible have to say to, to us um, because of what it says first to the original authors. And so examining the, the text contextually helps us realize well, the transfiguration always follows it. Tran, uh, examining the text grammatically, uh, we can realize that the word kingdom can also be translated as royal splendor or glory. That's uh, a normal way for that to be translated. So we could read, that uh, Jesus said that some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the royal splendor or the glory of God after it has come into power. And again, right after this is the transfiguration where we see Jesus coming in his glory. Let's read those next couple of verses, verses 2 and 3. It says that six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And so we see here that Jesus reveals his glory to his inner circle. He has this group of people, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them aside from all of his other disciples, and they get to see this transformation take place. Uh, among Jesus, where he is uh, being glorified in their presence. And uh, this glory is being manifested in Jesus. And I have a, a couple of references here to look up. Remember, if I put them in yellow there, it means I'm hoping that you will look them up and help me read them. We have several of those today. So I'll go ahead and grab Isaiah 42.8 if uh, somebody will be making their way to John to pick up those other references for us. In Isaiah 42, 8, uh, Yahweh says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. That whole section 
uh, God is talking about, it's the putting on, on trial the false gods, the, the trial of the, the idols. And he's saying, I'm not going to share my glory. I am unique. I am set apart. I am the one and only Yahweh. And he says, my glory, I'm not giving it to anybody else. He is jealous for his glory. And that's a good thing, that God is jealous for his glory. Uh, John 1.14, who's got that for us? All right, thanks, babe. All right, and who is writing that? Who wrote the book of John? Good job, John. You guys really need some coffee this morning. John wrote the book of John. John, who was here at the transfiguration, right? Remember, it was Peter, James, and John. And he's saying, you know what? We have seen the glory of God. We have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he's no doubt in my mind that he, while he's penning these words, uh, he is recalling this event of the transfiguration that he was an eyewitness to, uh, saying that he saw the glory of Jesus. So in Isaiah, God doesn't share his glory, and yet Jesus is uh, shown as being glorified here in uh Mark 9 and also in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. Now later on in John 1, John is recalling this glory and he's sharing it. This was something spectacular. This was splendid. And uh, we were there. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten. What about John 17, 5? Who's got that for us? All right. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right, this is also important to remember. John 17, 5 says that Jesus had this glory with the Father before the world existed. So it's not as if Jesus was at some point in time glorified, that he became glorious, not at his baptism, not at the transfiguration, not at the cross or the resurrection or the ascension. Um, Jesus has always been God, right? Jesus is glorious, his glory, however, was veiled during the incarnation. While he was on this earth, his glory was hidden. It was veiled. And at the transfiguration, that glory was unveiled for a time. And at the ascension, he was uh, given that, that position of glory once again. He was ascended into the glory that he once had with the Father before the world was. Any thoughts or questions that this point, the first three verses of Mark 9. All right. I will do my best by just reading the text to uh, bring up some questions in your mind because there are many questions that we should have just reading through the text. It gets even more interesting as we read on. I'll pick up in verse 4. It says that Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. You should have questions at this point, right? <laughs> Continuing on. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Again, we should have more questions. Verse 6, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. So this is wild, right? This is crazy. They're sitting there with Jesus, and 
all of a sudden these two famous Jewish prophets show up and they appear and they're talking just randomly with, with Jesus. Mark just kind of nonchalantly says, no, they were talking with Jesus. And uh, it's really no, no accident that God chose these two individuals to be here uh, talking with Jesus, these two prominent figures, because there really were no two better, uh, more trustworthy witnesses that could come along and they could convince these men of Jesus' necessity to, um, to do what he was about to do, to go to the cross, to suffer and to die. This was, in fact, God's plan. And again, I said that Mark just, he just says that they were talking with Jesus. He doesn't really give any insight into what they were talking about, into the context of their conversation. But Luke does. In Luke 9, 30 and 31, Luke says that two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So, uh, Luke says that they were talking about his upcoming departure. The word in Greek is exodon. So they were talking about his exodus. So uh, the, the most prominent figure that is associated with the exodus of the Old Testament, Moses, along with this crazy anomaly of a, a person who made this, he was most known for his exodus from this earth, in a way that defied death. Remember, that he, he walked with God. He was taken up in the, the chariot. These two people are talking with Jesus, who was going to shortly exit this world in the most dramatic exodus ever to be recorded in all history. The exodus that is going to define history, that the calendar is going to be centered around, that is going to uh, pay for the sins of the world and provide... Uh, justification for those who believe. This is a, a crazy setting right now with these three people talking about Jesus' soon-to-come departure, his soon-to-come exodus from the world. And Luke goes on. He Yes, go ahead. We could definitely say to, to a degree that, yeah, Moses, he, he authored the law, right? And Isaiah, he was one of the most uh, prominent prophets. And together, they, there has been that statement that they, they kind of uh, resemble or uh, sim, simplify, I don't know, uh, the, the in, entirety of the Old Testament. Um, and to some degree, yeah, to some degree we can say, okay, well, they, they were prominent in the Old Testament and they helped author the Old Testament. They were definitely prophets that were there in the Old Testament, um, for sure. Do you have a question, Andy? How did the disciples know it was Moses and Elijah? Uh, Luke also mentioned they had name badges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hello, Elder Moses yeah. and Elder Elijah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, it, we're not told in any of the Gospels how they knew that it was Moses or Elijah. Um, we can assume that they either introduced themselves or that Jesus made some introductions, but they did not have name badges. So that's a 
a legitimate question. Uh, but yeah, I think there were introductions that were made, no doubt. Jerry. Well, as to comments that they were talking with Jesus about his exodus, so it wasn't just a flash here. There was a period of time there. Mm -hmm. First of all, his disciples passed out, basically. They were terrified. It took them a while to regain their wits. Yeah. So they were hearing this conversation. So there was a lot more in their context than there is in ours. Yep. Yeah, just as we've mentioned several times going throughout our study that we're just reading really short summaries of what's going on. Uh, all these events took place over three years. Uh, no doubt that the experience of the Transfiguration had a lot more that took place than what we have before our eyes today. Uh, one more detail that Luke mentions that Mark doesn't is that these two men were, uh, they were asleep. Let's see, Luke 9.32 says, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, and when they, had fully, when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So they were there, dozed off. They had gone up the mountain with Jesus, and they were now conked out. And they woke up, and then they beheld this vision before them. Uh, and... Yeah, they're probably trying to rub their eyes and make sure they're awake and trying to figure out what's going on. And they were, in fact, awake. This was a real event. This wasn't some kind of dream or vision. Uh, but they seemed to be disoriented at first, and it took a little while for that disorientation to, to wear off. They were still confused even as time went on. Any other thoughts or comments? It's also interesting that Mark is giving Peter's Recollections, whereas Luke had to ask probably all three of them about this. Probably had quite a quite a chat with them that he would provide more information than and Peter talks briefly about it. Yeah. Second Peter. It's just interesting that the investigator dug up and reported more details than any participants did. Yep. And remember, they're all writing with a, a different purpose, too. And so they're not all going to point out the same details. But yeah, Luke was very meticulous in his writing. Um, between Luke and Acts, Luke wrote the majority of the New Testament, even more than Paul, with all of his 13 epistles. Luke still wrote more because he is so detailed and meticulous. So in verse 5, we have this. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted Yeah. And when he went up on the mountain and was in the presence of God, when the disciples are here on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, it's Isaiah 6. Yeah. Right? You're in the presence of the Lord. There is no question about it. You are, it's discombobulating. Amen. I would think. Yeah, why don't you go there for us? I'm getting yeah. ready to go there in a second. So yeah. open up to Isaiah 6, and we'll get there in a second. But first, um, we have to look at, uh, so verse 5, we have this. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles for you. 
or three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And you might think, well, why? What is, what is going on? What is he thinking? It says in verse 6, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Uh, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, right? That's one of the Proverbs. I think that probably should have been Peter's life verse because uh, he could have avoided much transgression by using fewer words. Um, but it says that he didn't know what to answer. They became terrified. Uh, Luke even adds in 933 that he didn't realize what he was saying. So there's, yeah, this discombobulation, this just trying to figure out what is going on kind of aspect going on. But then, as you mentioned, Andy, um, we see that terror is always the, the common response when coming into contact with the Lord of glory. You come into contact with, with God and you're, you're not going to be the same. We hear all these flippant stories today about, oh, Jesus told me something, or I saw God in a dream, and uh, I was dancing and laughing around, and that's not the experience we see in Scripture. People fall down on their face. They are terrified when coming into the presence of God. So, could I get four volunteers to look up these verses real quick, and we'll look at four different experiences that um, really mirror this response that Peter had in his terror uh, different experiences from Abraham and Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and John. Uh, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, let's do them in order then. Let's start with Genesis and work our way through. Go ahead, Greg. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. That's all we need to know. Abram, Abram fell on his face. That was his response. He, down on the ground, right? What about Isaiah, Andy? Isaiah 6, 5. I got it. <laughs> I got it. Okay. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the hosts. Yeah. Woe is me. I am undone. Right? I am unclean. Ezekiel. Yeah. <laughs> now above the expanse there was over their heads was something resemblance, resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man and I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked mm. like fire all around within it and from the appearance of his and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him, and the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on huh. rainy days. So, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Amen. So there we see another description of the great appearance of just the, the bright, shining radiance of, of God. And the response was he fell on his face. And uh, Joseph, you said you have Revelation one seventeen. Right. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. What's the next verse say? Uh, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Amen. 
All right, so he comes into contact with the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty himself, and he falls on his face. You have something, Britt? All right, so there's good reason for uh, Peter to be afraid, right? But um, this response really isn't all that far out there to say, why don't we build some tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah? That, that sounds kind of crazy for us, but we should realize that this event, the transfiguration, took place uh, six months prior to Christ's death, prior to the Passover, which means that they would be currently celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And you can go and read about that a little bit in Leviticus 23, 39 through 44, and about how that's really a, a commemoration of what God did for Israel and bringing them up out of the land of Egypt and rescuing them out of the land of Egypt. But the Feast of Tabernacles also does more than that. It looks forward to the future as well, the future deliverance that God is going to provide. Um, I want to read to you from Zechariah 14, which uh, likely might have been going through Peter's mind as he was trying to wake up and figure out what was going on and being confused and trying to just place himself. Uh, in Zechariah 14:9, it says the, that the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And remember, at this point, Peter has identified Jesus as being this Lord, as being this king. That's why he's looking forward to his reign, right? I'm going on a little bit farther in Zechariah 14, 16. It says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so with this being the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and with Peter having recently realized this is the king, um, he's, he's trying to fit all these pieces together and figure it out and thinking, okay, well, you're going to ring, you're here, it's a piece of booze, you're glowing, and there's Moses and Elijah. Uh, maybe I should build some tabernacles. He's just, he's wanting lost. He's trying to them. place himself. What's that? Wanting to honor them? Or... Yeah, yeah he's, he's trying to figure stuff out, right? He's, um, he's confused. Um, his timing is all jacked up. He's still looking forward to the, the glorious reign of Jesus, but remember, what did Jesus tell him had to take place before his glorious reign? Yeah. His death, right? Uh, that's important, that they were continuing to talk about his death. While they were there, they were talking about his departure, his exodus, right? They weren't talking about uh, his glorification. They weren't talking about his coming kingdom. They weren't talking about his coming reign. Uh, Jesus had told them a week earlier that he had, he, the Son of Man, had to suffer and, and die, and he would rise again. And now he's telling them again, there, in the presence of Moses and Elijah, being confirmed by Moses and Elijah, and Christ in his glory. And he's trying to get this through to the disciples. I have to die. The Son of Man has to suffer and die. And then, in verses 7 and 8, we have confirmation from the Father as well. It says, Then a cloud formed, overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except for jesus alone so we see that the father affirms jesus and his message to the disciples concerning his death listen to him they're they're talking about his death 
about his exodus, you need to listen to Jesus. And notice that this is a, a confirmation of Jesus even being set apart from Moses and Elijah. The father says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not listen to them, right? Jesus is set apart even from among them. Now, we might think that Peter's desire to build three tabernacles may imply that he thought that they were all somehow uh, equal, that they were on equal playing field. Genius uh, said that he wanted to, to honor them. And I think that's a, a good conclusion, that he was placing them all on the same level, perhaps. Well, uh, this was a bad conclusion um, because Jesus was absolutely set apart, right? Jesus was the one who uh, spoke not as the other scribes spoke, but he spoke with authority. That's why the Father said, no, listen to him. He is my beloved son. Uh, in John 5, 46 and 47, it says, for you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm superior to Moses, right? We see the same thing in uh, Hebrews 3, that Jesus is better, he's superior to Moses. What about in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3? Somebody have that ready for us? Many portions of many ways. In these last days, has spoken to us by his son, appointed heir of all things, whom also we made the world. And sorry. And he is the exact representation of his glory, right? So Jesus is set apart. He is the the representation of the glory of the Father, which we see here at the Transfiguration. Listen to him. In the past, God has spoken through prophets in many portions, many ways. Now he's spoken through his son. Um, so we saw that Peter was already rebuked by Jesus. And now we see the father essentially doing the same thing. Telling Peter, no, you need to listen to my son. Listen to him. And in verse 7, it says, this cloud formed, overshadowed them. Oh, that's what it is. Listen to him. Listen to this quote from John Grassman. He says that this was Jesus' last command to silence recorded by Mark. Oh, this is verse 9, sorry. That as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So this was Jesus' last command to silence recorded by Mark and the only one on which he set a time limit. This implied that a time of proclamation uh, would follow this period of silence. Only from the perspective of the resurrection would they understand the transfiguration and thus be able to proclaim its meaning correctly. Uh, oh, there we go. Second Peter. We'll go there in a second. So uh, we do see from Luke chapter 9, verse 36, that they did in fact keep silent. And they reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So they actually listened to this command from Jesus to be quiet, to not say anything until after his resurrection. Um, but just like John spoke about uh, Jesus' glory later on in John 1, uh, 14, when he said we beheld his glory, uh, Peter later refers back to this experience as well. So here in 
2 Peter 1 that Jerry referred to earlier, uh, Peter does just that. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Uh, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, you got to believe that he told this story more than just this one time, right? <laughs> I saw Jesus in his glory. This had to be like one of his top five stories that he would tell around the campfire or whatever. Uh, but this, even though Peter was an eyewitness, and now he was free to talk about it because Jesus had died and risen from the dead, uh, what he says afterwards is even more incredible. He goes on, he says, so we have the prophetic word, the, the Bible, made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So he's saying, we have this prophecy that God has given us that's made more sure than when I was there on the mountain beholding the glory of God. I think that's an incredible testament of the, the word of God, this prophecy that God has given them. He goes on, he says that until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your heart. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We didn't just make it up. For no prophecy was ever made up by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He's saying we have the words of God here, and it is more sure than seeing Jesus in the flesh glowing alongside of Moses and Elijah. And he's giving this to uh, these same persecuted Christians that he's writing to, saying, you guys can take this uh, to the bank. This is more certain, more sure. <coughs> All right, we have to move on. I am behind on time. Um, Elijah and John the Baptist in verses 10 through 13. This is quite a chunk. All right, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, um, after Jesus told them not to say anything until he rose from the dead, Verse 10 says, They seized upon this statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So, uh, we need to go back. We need to start by looking at Malachi 3, 1, which prophesies this, this coming. It says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, remember, this is far before the days of email, Right? So they couldn't just shoot an email out when somebody was coming, when they were headed on their way. What they would do when they were traveling, when they were doing business or headed to a certain location, is they would send a, a messenger ahead of them. They would send a herald ahead of them to declare and to proclaim their, their coming, especially for royalty. And so God is declaring 400 years beforehand that Jesus is going to be coming, that he himself, Yahweh, is going to be coming. He says, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So God is coming, and he is sending a messenger, a herald, to 
prepare this way for him. Malachi 4, 5 goes on to identify this herald as Elijah. And this is what sparks the understanding that the scribes have that Elijah would first come. And the question from the disciples asking Jesus, is, the, is Elijah to precede the Messiah? And Jesus, in fact, confirms this in Mark 9, 12. He says, uh, Elijah does first come to restore all things. So it's confirmed by Jesus himself. Um, yes, Jesus affirms Malachi 3, 1 and 4, 5 through 6, that Elijah must first come. But then we're left with this question of the relationship between Elijah and John the Baptist. Uh, do, do they work together? Are they the same person? Is John the Baptist Elijah? And it's kind of interesting that John himself actually speaks to this. And John says, point blank, no, he is not Elijah. That's from John 1, 19 through 21. And it says that this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, well, what then? Who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said, well, just, just stop playing games. We don't want to play this 20 questions. Just tell us who you are. And then Elijah goes on to quote Isaiah 40, verse 3. And he says, I am a voice. What's that? John the Baptist. Yes. I said Elijah. Yes, that's confusing. Right. John the Baptist <laughs> goes on to quote Isaiah 40, verse 3. Uh, which says that he is a voice that is calling, clear the way for Yahweh, the Lord, in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus seems to say yes here in uh, verse 13 of Mark 9. He says, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Uh, well, you look over in Mark, and it says in Mark or Matthew 17, 13, that the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Well, if we just had these two statements, one from John the Baptist and one from Jesus, and that's all we had, then of course we would be forced to take Jesus' word over John the Baptist's word, right? Uh, however, I think we have a little bit more to go on and that we gain great insight by looking at Luke 1. So Luke 1, verses 13 through 17 says that the angel had said to him, to Zacharias, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have the joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now he's quoting Malachi 4. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so... We see here that John is sent in the spirit and power of Elijah, which I think is different from saying that John is the same person as Elijah. John is a herald. He is preparing the way of the Lord in the same way that Elijah was prophesied as doing, as preparing the way for the Lord. And in fact, 
John the Baptist paid the price for it, didn't he? They treated John the Baptist just like they wanted to treat Elijah. Remember, Elijah stood before King Ahab and before Jezebel, and they wanted to kill him, uh, but they could. God took him up. But uh, John the Baptist, as we read back in chapter 6, he was killed by Herod and by Herodias. He was treated just like they wanted to treat Elijah some 900 years prior to this. Um, going on, we see that uh, John the Baptist in the New Testament is acting as the forerunner who points the way to the arrival of the Lord, just as Elijah fulfilled that role in the Old Testament. And he will again one day in the future as well. Let me read for you Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Now get this, a time frame right here. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Same thing that John the Baptist did. So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So this speaks specifically of the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. However, um, it's speaking of Elijah. So I do think that John the Baptist, when it says in uh, Luke 1 that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, he was doing the same thing. He was acting as this herald, just as Elijah will act as a herald before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And I want to wrap up by sharing a couple of quotes from some resources that you guys really ought to know about. The first one comes from Karm.com, which is Matt Slick's uh, website that he runs and operates. Karm stands for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. And he says there that the teaching of reincarnation is against the Old Testament. Therefore, Jesus was not teaching that John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated. We shouldn't think that at all. In fact, we can realize that Elijah appears alongside of Moses at the transfiguration after John's death. So if Elijah had actually changed his identity to that of John the Baptist, then he would have appeared as John the Baptist rather than Elijah. Um, and there's also a distinction that's being made, that's been made between John the Baptist and Elijah by uh, the public, the general public, by Herod and the disciples. Remember when Herod said, well, maybe this is Elijah, or maybe he's John the Baptist. And uh, when we just looked at Jesus a couple weeks ago asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? He said, well, some people say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, or one of the other prophets. So they're making a distinction. They're not seeing them as the, the same person. Uh, one other resource is gotquestions.org. It's a great website, has uh, thousands of questions answered. And they say that John did for Jesus what Elijah was to have done for the coming of the Lord, but he was not Elijah reincarnated. John identified, Jesus rather, identified John the Baptist as Elijah, while John the Baptist rejected that identification. How do we reconcile these two teachings? There is a key phrase in Jesus' identification of John the Baptist that must not be overlooked. He says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. In other words, John the Baptist's identification as Elijah was not predicated upon him being the actual Elijah, but upon people's response to his role, to those who were willing to believe in Jesus. John the Baptist functioned as Elijah, for they believed in Jesus as Lord. But to the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, John the Baptist did not perform this 
function. So John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lord in the same way that Elijah will come to prepare the way for the Lord before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So uh, really quickly, uh, if we look back, we notice that the disciples are really caught up in asking about Elijah. Because remember, they're really caught up in Jesus' glorification and his coming kingdom. But Elijah has to come first, right? Uh, Where is Elijah? What is that all about? But if you notice um, that um, Jesus, he kind of dodges that question. He does affirm Elijah's role, and he even gives a a hat tip to John the Baptist for, for operating in that role. But he redirects the apostles' attention altogether. Um, to the necessity of his death. So in verse 12, it says that they said to them, that he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So Jesus keeps redirecting them. I'm going to suffer. I have to die first. Don't worry about Elijah. Don't worry about me coming in glory. That's going to happen. My kingdom will be established. But how is it written? that the Son of Man has to suffer and be treated with contempt. They keep wanting to jump over that, and Jesus keeps drawing their attention back. No, the Son of Man has to die. The Son of Man has to suffer. And we'll close with this verse in Isaiah 53.10, just one of the many from the Old Testament that, again, the disciples were overlooking because they were so excited about his glory. It says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. There's a a reference to his resurrection. He's not going to be dead. He's going to see those spiritual offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the disciples were wanting to overlook the cross, and Jesus over and over again has to keep drawing their attention back. That's not okay. I know you have lots of questions. I do too. Bring them next week, and hopefully we'll have time to talk about them. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your glory. Uh, I'm excited to, uh, to see your glory one day, and pray that we will uh, just be transfixed with your, your word until then, with that which is more sure, more perfect, uh, your holy word. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.